today's Dharma talk is effort or non-effort, what needs to be done. And I'd like to begin by reading a passage from the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, where the Buddha was describing his early days of practice before his enlightenment. And he described his practice, the quality of his engagement as, with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed mind with mind. While I did so, sweat ran from my armpits. Just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him, and crush him, so too with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed mind with mind, and sweat ran from my armpits. But although tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness was established, my body was overwrought and uncalm because I was exhausted by the painful striving. Now, the Buddha tried very hard. He was no lazy bum. But he also was an intelligent man, so he realized that he had put forth the maximum effort that a human being could do, but he still was not liberated. And so fortunately for us, he had a thought. He thought, could there be another way to awakening? And he recalled a time when he was a youth, a young boy who was sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree. And he quite spontaneously, in that ease and that solitude and that quiet, he quite easily experienced happy states, blissful states, deep states of concentration and absorption. And he wondered if perhaps there could be something in this experience that might support enlightenment. So today I want to speak about a dynamic between effort and non-effort, or ease. Sometimes I read this passage. It's actually one of my personal favorites, even though it was before the Buddha's enlightenment, because I find it very inspiring. But I also always feel this great sense of relief when I remember, oh yes, the Buddha realized that this kind of painful striving is not what he taught. It's not what he recommended. I think we have to respect the rigor of the Buddha, though. Punjaji, my teacher in India, had a favorite image of the Buddha, and he used to love this image, and it was the image of the starving Buddha. Do you know that image? The one where the Buddha has the image of the the, the Buddha sitting before his enlightenment while he has his ribs are just coming through his skin and his belly is like non-existent and he's quite emaciated. This is a quite a beautiful image because it depicts the effort and the depth of commitment that the Buddha had, the depth of commitment in his practice of awakening. There are times when exertion is needed, a willingness, a courage, a willingness to bring forth the energy, to give ourselves wholeheartedly to our practice, wholeheartedly to the present moment. But if we're always striving without knowing rest, we can easily find ourselves fatigued rather than strengthened by our practice. So there is another approach to meditation that I've also valued very much in my own practice. And it's described very beautifully by Neoshil Ken Rinpoche, a Tibetan lama who I practiced with, where he said, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves, in an infinite ocean of samsara. Are you in touch with your weariness? 
that weariness that comes from endlessly trying to get more of the things we like and avoid the things that we don't like? Do you feel the weariness, the tiredness that comes from relentless thinking, thinking about this and then thinking about that and then having another angle on that thought? There can be an exhaustion that comes from worry, from preoccupation, from fantasy, from regret, from remorse, from restlessness, from reactivity. As you reflect for a moment on the thoughts that you had today, how many of them were particularly useful, interesting, unique? How many of them would you actually even want to admit to? Sometimes our minds fill up the time in a meditation, in a day, in any activity, mindlessly fabricating an image of ourselves. Rather than being a true friend to ourselves, awake to our actual experience, in a relationship with something that is real, We might find ourselves living in a fantasy, preoccupied with what happened in the past or what might happen in the future. Sometimes we're even commenting about what's happening now. And that commentarial layer can remove us from a vivid experience of what's happening now. Even as you experience the sensations of breath, Does a concept about the breath mitigate your experience of it? Sometimes we judge things about ourselves as simple as our breath. Oh, too many short breaths. Oh, it could be longer. It could be shorter. It could be smoother. It could be rougher. It should be this way. It shouldn't be that way. How do we know how we should breathe? In this practice, we open to the actuality of our experience and practice with something as simple as feeling a breath. Too often, our energy gets frittered away, entertaining ourselves with these various stories, filling our time with conceptual proliferation, rather than being in touch with what's actually happening, or even the fatigue of the mind that keeps thinking. It keeps us from being in touch with that deeper desire for awakening, a desire for profound rest. I lived with um, this teacher I mentioned, Punjaji, H.W.L. Punja, in India for several years. Well, I visited him over several years. I actually lived in his home for more than three years. And he often told stories. And he had a few favorites that he would tell me. And sometimes he had different examples. And one of the things that the illustrations that he often spoke to me about in the first year I was with him was uh, he would talk about an airplane and he would say, Shyla, you've done the work, you've earned the ticket, you've gone to the travel agent, you've purchased your airplane ticket, you've packed your bags, you've taken the taxi, you've gone to the airport and you've boarded the plane. Why do you keep getting out of your seat and trying to push the plane? He said, sit down and buckle up. Enjoy the view. And it was a great reminder for me. It was a, a sense of just sitting down, buckling up and enjoying the view. To have that possibility of surrender with alertness. Watch the view. Don't go to sleep. Just watch the view. And it raised a question for me that continues to be an ongoing contemplation in my practice, which is, when is effort required? And when is alert relaxation required? Even something as simple as working with the postures as we did in the morning meditation today, 
Sometimes we have this belief that I could, if I could just get the right posture, if I could fix it right, hold it, keep it, arrange it, organize it somehow, manipulate my body so that I'm sitting perfectly, then it'll be okay. Then I'll be able to meditate. Then I'll get enlightened. But postural work, like everything else, invites more a more fluid experience of energy and of effort. Because there is something we must do. You know, we, we sit ourselves down, we feel our posture, we bring ourselves into some kind of an alignment with gravity. We feel ourselves. And if we're really slumped over or we're really straining, we might release that. We might correct that. So we might undo the harmful action that we've taken. Perhaps it's a pattern of strain and holding ourselves too tight. Or perhaps it's a pattern of slouching and being too slack about it. So we might want to bring some energy to raising it up. But once we have sort of taken the harmful action out of our posture, I think we can trust our bones to hold us up. I think we can allow ourselves to then come into alignment and to no longer need the to keep adjusting, to keep fixing, to keep squirming. We can find ease in relationship to gravity. Sometimes people are surprised when they hear about my practice because um, I quite love meditation. And I have since I first began my meditation practice at the age of 17. And then they hear that I stayed with this non-dual master named Punchichi, who has a reputation for not recommending meditation. And people sometimes scratch their head and they think, what's this about? And it's interesting to me because I don't believe Punjaji did not recommend meditation. It's, well, maybe he did. Maybe it's true that he didn't recommend meditation. But what does that actually mean? That can easily be misunderstood. Punjaji never taught a technical approach to meditation. He never told people to sit a certain way, cross their legs a certain way, move the attention to the nostrils or to the belly and to do any particular form of meditation. But like I said, I lived with him for three years. And he also told me, when you stay with the master, don't do what the master says. Watch what they do. His normal routine was to wake up sometime between 4 and 4.30 in the morning. And you know those hard Indian beds? He would sit up, he'd cross his legs, he'd put one hand on one knee, one hand on the other knee, he'd close his eyes. I would never say he was meditating. (laughs) But he'd stay there for about a half an hour or so. Then he'd get up and he'd take his bath. By that point, the house was kind of moving and we were getting everything all, you know, or, you know, ready. And then we would go for a walk in the neighborhood and on the way back get the bread and the milk for breakfast. Then I would go into the kitchen and start the breakfast, set the table, make the tea. And he would go back into his room. He'd cross one leg, he'd cross the other, he'd put one hand, he'd put one hand, he'd close his eyes. But he wasn't meditating. And he'd more or less stay like that until I called him or until maybe we brought the paper to him or something, and then maybe he'd read the paper or come out for breakfast. After breakfast, he would go back into his room. He'd sit on his bed, cross one leg, cross the other, hand, hand, close his eyes. I'd never again say he was meditating. But he'd stay there for some time, however long he felt. It could be 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 2 minutes. It could be an hour. And then he might take a little rest, By that time, he was in his late 70s and early 80s. Um, And then um, usually people would come to see him later. And often before um, the the satsang, formal satsang began, guess what he did? Cross one leg, cross the other, hand, hand, eyes closed. So then after satsang, people started to leave. He would go back into his room, sitting again for however long he felt like it usually 10, 15, 20 minutes. Then we'd start to get the, the, the lunch going, the lunch prepared and everything. And um, after lunch, before he lay down for his afternoon rest, he sat again for however long, 10, 15, 20 minutes. 
the day went on like this throughout the day. When he woke up, he didn't just get up. He sat again. Then he would go to the bathroom. So you get the idea of how he didn't meditate. So when people tell me that, oh, you know, they're practicing Advaita, they don't need to meditate, I say, don't meditate like this. You know, that, this is the way not to meditate. So it's an interesting thing. What do we think it means to meditate? And what does it, we think it means to not meditate? I counted up the hours, and I would say he averaged four to six hours a day of not meditating in the sitting posture. Now, one time I was staying in a guest house in, a, in, in India, and a friend, I was sharing a room with a friend, and um, I, was, I had bronchitis. You know, those of you that have been to India, it's like, it's not one thing, it's another. So anyway, I was miserable in my room. And I was just sitting on my bed, sucking a cough drop. And my friend comes in, and my legs were crossed, my hands were like that, my eyes was closed. And, and she said, oh, I'm so sorry I interrupted your meditation. And I just said, I'm sucking a cough drop. Was I meditating? How do we know when we're meditating? What is it to meditate and what is it to not meditate? Does meditation require a certain posture? Certainly we can't limit it to the sitting posture because the Buddha taught four postures. But he didn't just teach the four postures. As I mentioned this morning, he also spoke about wakefulness and awareness while bending, while reaching, while lifting, while moving, while working, while chewing, while eating, while defecating. So what do we think we have to do in order to meditate? What about your work meditation periods here? while you're chopping the vegetables or wiping the tables or stocking the tea or cleaning the floor. Is that meditation? Wise effort is an important part of any meditative endeavor. And there are many approaches to wise effort. I don't recommend one single approach. Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche said, leave everything as it is in fundamental simplicity and clarity will arise by itself. Only by doing nothing will you do all there is to be done. Now this has one certain flavor of ease, one certain approach. I also spent a few years practicing in the forest monasteries of Thailand And in the forest monasteries, a different quality of effort was encouraged. And frankly, I found it to to demand rather vigorous effort, a a, a rather uh, intense quality of, of diligence, diligence to work with obstacles, to work with discomfort, to practice renunciation, to practice mild austerities. And when things started to get easy. You know, we'd sleep on the, on, the, on the floor, on the ground, on the dirt, on whatever. Or, and we'd eat one meal a day, and we were encouraged to minimize the amount of sleep. I was considered quite slothful when I arrived because I liked to sleep six hours a day. And they would ask, the monks would ask how many hours I slept. And if I said six, they would like, oh, what a, like, tourist. <laughs> <laughs> Four was somewhat acceptable, and three would be the only thing that would get, like, oh, okay. That would get a nod. (laughs) Um, And when things started to get easy, we were encouraged to kind of, because everything gets easy, you know, even discomfort, you get used to it after a while. So we were encouraged to then increase it, choose something to practice with that still challenged our minds to notice if we were reactive to desire or aversion, to seeking comfort or uh, moving away from discomfort. So we practice with simple things, you know, like um, walking barefoot, getting rid of our sandals or our shoes or um, uh, uh, different ways of going through the food line so that we would minimize or explore our relationship to pleasure and food. But the idea wasn't to suffer. The idea was to continuously challenge our practice so that we didn't just let it get easy, 
because anything can get easy. Now, I happen to love discipline and practice. Um, that's something that I, I find quite enjoyable. And I've been blessed with Christopher as one of my primary teachers, which um, has sometimes been a little bit annoying in the best possible sense of the word. Now, in one of the phases of my practice, when I was really diligent about my mindfulness, I did not want to let a single moment go by that I did not note it. <laughs> I was doing that kind of noting practice. I was like really gung-ho. Um, I was sitting at a retreat with Christopher, and not that he taught that practice, but I was just doing it. And um, Christopher challenged me to not practice mindfulness. And I got quite irritated. I thought, what do you mean not practice mindfulness? He wanted me to sit and walk, but not practice mindfulness. And it stunned me. Doing what? Sit and walk, doing what? What was I supposed to do then? And because I was irritated, I had to look at it to see what's that irritation about, Shyla? What's going on there? And so I had to try it. And it was a wonderful experience because it demanded not only that I see what it was I thought I was doing to practice mindfulness, but it also what it might involve not doing, not meditating. And I very quickly realized how extraordinarily natural, pervasive, and available awareness was. In that first um, year or so when I lived with Poonjaji, um, whenever there was a moment when I wasn't working um, to maintain the household or to serve the people who came to see him, um, I would sit down and close my eyes. And it wouldn't be very long before Poonjaji would come up with an errand. Oh, go get me this water. Oh, go do this. Oh, go to the bazaar and buy some more lentils. Oh, but we have six pounds in the cupboard. Go buy some more lentils. I told you to go buy some lentils. <laughs> and so he would send me to, on these various errands. And it again was a wonderful practice for me because I learned at first I was trying to maintain something in the sitting posture, something in the meditation. And by moving so um, frequently between what I had thought of as being meditation and a deep state. And the interaction of an Indian bazaar, and I also always had to get a good rate for the lentils because he would ask me. So I'd have to interact, I'd have to bargain, I'd have to go through the whole, you know, do the whole, the whole thing. I realized that that experience was again pervasive. Maybe experience is the wrong word, but what I was trying to conceive of as occurring in the sitting meditation could not be limited to that sitting meditation. And Poonjaji kept forcing me out of the sitting meditation and into the, into the bazaar and then back again and into the bazaar and back again to wear away those boundaries that I was putting around my spiritual practice. Now, there was another Vipassana retreat that I attended where I was asked to make a commitment to 14 hours of formal sitting and walking practice each day. And I was supposed to report in each of my interviews the number of hours and minutes that I practiced. And I was only to count formal sitting and formal walking. So I had to eliminate the time that it took to put on my sweater or to eat a meal or to go to the bathroom or to blow my nose or to get a cup of tea or anything else. And this was a, a time to really look at and analyze my effort because I found it to be exhausting. And I, off for weeks, I couldn't even do the 14 hours. I thought, I'll never be able to do the 14 hours. This is too much. And I thought I was trying really hard. And I was. That was my mistake. I was trying really hard. I was putting in at least 95% effort. That 5% drag was killing me. And finally, I realized 
that I just let go and I just surrendered with no resistance to 100%. And I didn't try anymore. As soon as I gave up that 5% of holding back, then it was really easy. 14 hours was nothing. I could easily do 16, 17, 18. Because I wasn't holding back and causing the resistance that tired me out. Now I also, I'm telling you a bits of my practice because effort and non-effort have been an ongoing theme in my practice. Um, Neosho Kenrinpoche, for those of you that um, were familiar with the Rested Natural Great Peace quote, he's a, uh, he was a wonderful um, Dzogchen teacher, Dzogchen master. And when I practiced with him, he gave me one instruction. And in the years I practiced with him, every single time I asked him a question about my meditation, he gave me the same instruction, just two words. I don't know if I never got it or what, but he always just said the same thing. He would say, just relax. And he'd throw his arms up, and he'd lean back, and he'd go, ah. And then he'd say it again, just relax. Now, knowing me, some months later, some a year later, I'd ask another question, and he'd ask exactly, do exactly the same thing with me. Now, each time I went into his room to greet him, every single time, morning, noon, or night, he was engaged in formal meditation practices, chanting, he was using his mala, he was reading his prayer books, he was performing a puja, or he was meditating. Well... I wouldn't say he was meditating again. He was sitting cross-legged. You know. <laughs> so when he said just relax, he was not telling me to go take a holiday on the beach. What did it mean to just relax? Milarepa said, return to your natural state without effort or distraction. Know the way of such relaxation, fortunate one." So what does it mean to meditate without contriving the meditation? It certainly doesn't mean we should just hang out doing nothing. It doesn't mean we should let the mind wander through habitual patterns that we've seen before, sort of the stories in our minds. Sometimes some things need to be done. As one teacher often says, if your bedroom's upstairs and you want to go to bed, you have to first climb the stairs and then lay down. So on the one hand, there's effort, and on the other hand, non-effort. There's doing and there's not doing. So what is it that we're doing? Sometimes our effort is directed towards overcoming obstacles we may find the mind very dull and very sleepy. And we bring energy to that mind to overcome that sleepiness. We might stand. We might really focus. We might um, bring an intense kind of clarity to that dull state. We might find that anger arises sometimes. And we bring energy to maintain our posture, to feel the anger within our bodies rather than just let it dissipate through speech or action. We might find that we're preoccupied with obsessions, with anxiety, with self-judgment and criticism. And we bring energy into understanding how those forces are functioning in our mind in order to free ourselves from it. We might bring in the energy of renunciation or investigation. It's natural to encounter these various hindrances, these obstructions, and it will take courage and energy to work with the aches and the pains, the sleepiness, the dullness, and the emotional reactivity that sometimes arises. This is part of our meditation practice. But we also might be applying effort in order to investigate things. What do we investigate? Sometimes we contemplate change. We notice the impermanence of things. We notice how something arises 
how it changes and how it passes. We might investigate personal patterns. What kinds of patterns determine our perceptions? We might investigate um, more general patterns. How the mind reacts to stimulus. If there's a sight that we see and it's pleasant, how does the mind respond to that? What does that trigger in the mind? We might investigate how the mind moves from an unpleasant encounter sometimes into a reaction of anger or aversion or impatience or judgment. We might investigate when there's pain in the body. Do we have the thought, eh, I'm, maybe I'll leave this sitting early. You know, do, does, is there a, sen- a movement from a sensation rather than being mindful of the sensation to some kind of action that we take in our lives? So we start to investigate those patterns. Sometimes our effort, though, is much more subtle than that. And we direct our effort simply to tuning ourselves to the unconditioned, to opening to silence, to recognizing luminous clarity, to resting in emptiness. So the question of effort isn't just about trying harder. I'm not suggesting that we practice until sweat runs from our armpits. But non-effort also is not a matter of just hanging out and going with the flow of habitual tendencies. Skillful effort invites us to consider what is the most useful response to the conditions that are arising now. And there are some practical things to consider with our effort. The first is to ask ourselves periodically, is the amount of effort correct? Too much or too little given the current conditions? The amount of effort that you're going to need to be aware of what's happening now is going to change at different times of the day. You might need more energy if you're tired and sleepy. And there may be other times where the effort is just very light because there's such an accumulated quality of presence and mindfulness. There's a a lovely and famous uh, discourse where the Buddha was um, teaching about effort to a fellow uh, named Venerable Sona. And Venerable Sona is very dear to my heart. Those of you that have read the suttas know there are certain characters in the discourses that are very endearing. And Venerable Sona was an earnest monk. He really wanted to become awakened. And he tried really hard. In fact, it says that he was trying so hard that he was doing walking meditation back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until the soul's on the bottom of his feet were split and bleeding. But then he became discouraged. And he thought, I'm trying so hard. I'm never going to get enlightened. And he thought about returning to to the home life, giving up his practice. And fortunately, the Buddha intervened and taught Venerable Sona the famous simile of the use of the stringed instrument sometimes called a vena or a lute. And he asked um, Venerable Sona when he t- if he played um, one, a, a stringed instrument. And if he, if he tightened the strings too tight, did it make a good sound? And if he, tightened, if he loosened the strings too much, was it playable? And he taught him that he used this simile because a, an instrument is only playable and in tune when it's just the right amount of tightness, not too tight and not too loose. And like this, we engage with our experience moment by moment, bringing the amount of energy that we need to meet the experience, but not so much that we throw ourselves out of alignment with it. It takes a certain amount of energy just to even find the breath. Sometimes it can take a day of the the first retreat just to figure out, Am I breathing? How do I even know I'm breathing? What do I feel? 
And we have to kind of like pull our minds back from all those thoughts just to feel something as simple as that. And that takes energy. It takes effort. But when the attention is already settled there, we don't want to bring such strong energy that we start to then distort the breath, change it, manipulate it. So we want to have just the right amount of energy. And we tune that instrument ourselves as we see what's appropriate, what's needed. So the quantity of effort is important, but also the quality of effort. Sometimes our effort can be very strong, and that's needed. And sometimes it can be very allowing, sometimes gentle and soft, and other times directive and powerful. Sometimes we need to cut through certain mental states, and other times we need to embrace, accept, and open to what's happening. Sometimes the mind is very flexible and responsive, and other times we need the energy of resolution and determination, given the current conditions. How much effort is needed to be present this moment, to be present for this breath, to be present for a step, and allow ourselves to adjust the quantity and the quality of effort as needed. Sometimes people habitually overexert, try too hard, make excess effort, and that can be a very common pattern. And you'll notice it if you're fluffing your zafu at the end of the meditation and you're like really fluffing that zafu. How much effort does it take to fluff a zafu? How much effort does it take to tie a shoelace? If your forehead is all scrunched up and you're like tying that shoelace, maybe it's a little more effort than you need. I know people who've had surgery for repetitive stress injuries just from moving the mouse across a table. You know, it's light. But repeated hundreds of times every day, it can cause injury. And so it's worth looking at the quality of our effort, not just in meditation practice, but also throughout the day. How much effort does it take to lift a plate? How much effort does it take to put on a coat? How much effort does it take to sit in meditation? Sometimes our faces do a lot more efforting than we need, and we can notice that over-efforting just by feeling the tension in our face. And in take that as an invitation to rest back a little, to drop back, to release. A quality of persistence doesn't necessarily have to require tremendous striving. There can be a gentleness to persistence, an ease, a vigilance that doesn't nest, that can be very soft and enduring. It brings, can bring forth a continuity of mindfulness that doesn't need to have our teeth clenched and sweat running from our armpits. Each of us are going to have our own tendencies regarding effort. Some of us will be more demanding of ourselves, and others will be habitually more lazy, more slack. Chances are, whatever our tendencies are, we've brought to the cushion. And so we can consider those tendencies and discover ways of being sensitive to them and then challenging ourselves a little bit, extending ourselves a little bit. For some of you who are very striving in your pattern, it may be a challenge to relax a little, to learn how to relax. For those of you that are a little slack, it may be a challenge just to really meticulously keep the schedule. You know, just if there's a tendency to procrastinate, make a commitment not to be late. If there's a tendency to sleep through half of the day, but you know you're not really sick or need to sleep, make a commitment to, um, to really be diligent in the schedule. You have to sense for yourself what your patterns and tendencies are and what a skillful response to those are. The Buddha taught effort in his famous list of the four kinds of right effort, where he said that there is the effort to avoid 
unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. There is the effort to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen. So these two in relationship to unwholesome states would be, we would avoid states like intoxication and debt. He also had things in the list like dangerous cliffs and sewers, which shouldn't be too difficult to avoid. Um, But there's a wisdom in that. There are certain things that we can wisely avoid. And avoidance is can be applied as, as a wise effort. There's also the effort to abandon the things that harmful states that have already arisen. So these might be states of anger. They might be states of uh, ill will, desires for revenge, um, cruelty, um, greed, um, all kinds of hindrances and obstructions and things that lead to harm for self or others. The third kind of wise effort is to cultivate wholesome states that have not yet arisen. So this might include the cultivation of wisdom, of concentration, of compassion, of loving kindness. And there's also the effort to maintain wholesome states that have already arisen. This is a lovely one to consider, well, how can I nurture the wholesome states that have arisen? What kind of energy is required to support and to sustain those states of mindfulness, of wisdom, of loving kindness? Even in the course of a retreat, you might notice certain ways as mindfulness develops and investigation develops and concentration, that there are ways you can engage in that that support their sustaining So that once mindfulness arises, it's not like, okay, kick back, done, accomplished my goal. There was a moment of mindfulness. Well, how do we sustain those wholesome forces? Now, the instruction this morning, you're all witnesses, Christopher didn't hear. I really did not tell them to sit with their teeth clenched and their tongue pressed against the roof of their mouths beating down, constraining, and crushing mind with mind until sweat runs from your armpits. I should get a whip. (laughs) That would go with this talk, wouldn't it? The instruction and the wisdom of effort is much simpler than that, and it's the simple development of what is fruitful it brings, uh, inclines our attention towards cultivating what's fruitful and towards freeing ourselves from what is harmful. We don't, wise effort is not about trying harder. It's really a skillfulness in relationship to what is helpful and what is harmful. There's a Tibetan proverb that says, with a stout heart, a mouse can lift an elephant. And there are going to be times when you're going to need a stout heart. You're going to need courage and commitment in order to avoid, abandon, cultivate, and maintain. Now, there are many cases recorded in the Buddhist texts where people were enlightened by hearing a discourse of the Buddha, apparently without doing anything at all. Now, Uh, That's apparently. Sometimes, sometimes we can be profoundly touched by a direct perception of the truth just by hearing a Dharma discourse, by participating in an inquiry, by bringing a, a, a fullness of attention to the movement of grass flowing in the field or to watching a spider crawl down um, a leaf. Sometimes things touch us, shift us, transform our perception in ways that seem quite surprising, as though it has nothing to do with the effort that we make in meditation. I kind of figure if it hasn't, if this sudden awakening, sudden transformation isn't happening right now, and we have energy, we might as well apply it. 
We might say creatively, we might say wisely, we might say appropriate, appropriately. We have to do something in life. So what is it that we're going to use our energy for? If we're not abiding with a perpetual realization of our freedom, then generating some effort is sensible. To make a wish for enlightenment is not enough. To make a wish for peace, to have an aspiration for joy and happiness is not enough. Aspiration is powerful because it energizes our commitments, but there's a danger of mistaking aspiration for the practice, and wishing does not replace the path. The Buddha described aspiration without the practice of the path as being similar to trying to squeeze oil from sand or get milk by pulling the horn of a cow. It's not the correct method, and it's not going to bring about the desired results. If I want oil, I have to get safflower seeds or sunflower seeds or peanuts and grind them in order to get oil. No matter how hard I wish, oh, may this sand produce oil, may this sand produce oil, as I'm grinding sand, it is not going to work. Now, some people may rarely contemplate the possibility of freeing the mind from all suffering. They may not articulate the wish for freedom and may never use such loaded words like enlightenment. But still, in a quiet and seamless way, wisdom unfolds in their lives, even though they don't articulate it as the quest for freedom. Their practice is steady. Their hearts remain open to possibility. Little by little, we may realize that what once caused us suffering simply doesn't disturb us doesn't cause confusion, doesn't cause any um, suffering anymore. In the simile of the oil and the milk, the Buddha teaches that even if we do not have the intention to get oil or milk, if we follow the correct method, it will produce a result. Effort is a difficult topic for many people. Because sometimes when we speak about effort, we think it means control. We can apply ourselves, we can try, but that doesn't mean that we can control what happens to us. Equanimity is needed to see what unfolds from our efforts so that we can experience those results with a balanced attention. There is the simple practice of avoiding, abandoning, cultivating and maintaining with a spacious heart that is open and responsive. This is the path of freedom. But once in a while, as you're investigating the quality of effort, the quantity of effort, you might, there's a danger in a, in a practice like this of always having that scale out. Oh, a little more of this, a little less than that, lad. And always be manipulating and adjusting our practice. A little more disciplined, a little bit more permissive. Maybe the field of awareness should be broader. Maybe I should focus more precisely on a tingle. Sometimes I need to, you know, we, sometimes we can get a little bit too um, manipulative in our adjustments. Once in a while, it's helpful to let all those relative concerns be. Set them aside and just peek now and then into who or what is doing anything. Who is making the effort? Who is meditating? What can our efforts affect? And what is changeless, unaffected by the best of our striving? What is known beyond the touch of doing and not doing. Freedom is not going to be found on either side of a duality, not on doing and not by not doing, not in effort and not in non-effort. When we know our freedom without needing to distinguish 
doing from not doing. We'll have the freedom to both do and not do, or neither. Let's have some silent moments together. May we creatively and wisely use our energies in life. May we explore this dynamic of effort and ease. And may may we all awaken to the true nature of things. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.